I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And in this episode, we discuss Charlottesville and the right to free assembly. Protests in Charlottesville, Baltimore, and elsewhere have prompted many questions about the right to protest in our country. What restrictions can the government place on assemblies? What responsibilities do governments have to protect protesters? How should we think about the right to protest in a free society? And are there constitutional dimensions to the decision to leave up or to remove statues? Joining us to discuss these crucial, relevant, and important questions are two of America's leading scholars of the First Amendment, both of whom have contributed to the Interactive Constitution's explainer on the Free Association Clause. John Inazu is the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University Law School. His research focuses on the First Amendment freedoms of speech, assembly, and religion. And Bert Newborn is Norman Dorson, Professor of Civil Liberties and founding legal director of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. For more than 50 years, he has been one of America's foremost civil liberties lawyers and has argued many cases before the Supreme Court. John, Bert, thank you so much for joining. Great to be here and with you, Bert, again, too. Thank you. It is good to be here. Wonderful. Let's jump right in, Bert. It was a lawsuit by the ACLU against the city of Charlottesville that led eventually to the riots. Can you tell us about the facts of the case and why the ACLU sued the city for attempting to suppress the Unite the Rights First Amendment right to free assembly by moving them to a different park? Well, it was something that um, I must say was initially treated and would be treated by the ACLU as a kind of garden variety issue. It didn't seem like it was a particularly... Um, path-breaking event. I, I must have done this in myself as an ACLU lawyer 25 or 30 times in my career. Um, a group wants to have a, um, a demonstration, and um, uh, the demonstration is potentially loud, potentially raucous, and they go to the authorities and they say to the authorities, will you give us a permit to have uh, this many people gather in the park? And um, often uh, the, the authorities say no. You know, either it, um, uh, it's too much trouble or it's too loud or they're not sure that um, uh, the, uh, uh, they don't necessarily like the people who are coming. Um, but um, uh, you'd be amazed how many times when someone goes to a local uh, politi- political figure and says, I'd like a permit, the answer is no. ACLU responds to that almost reflexively and says, look, um, the Constitution provides a right of free assembly. Um, the streets and the parks belong to the people. And if you want to assemble in the street and assemble in the parks in ways that don't create significant interference with other people, like free traffic or a free movement, then you have an absolute First Amendment right to do that. Um, and I've sued 20 times on on an issue like that. And that's what happened in Charlottesville. The Charlottesville authorities uh, were initially reluctant to provide any permit, then when they decided finally that you could have a permit, um, they um, said that the um, assembly couldn't take place in the park with the statute that the um, supposed demonstration was all about. The demonstration was all about whether to keep the Robert E. Lee statute in Charlottesville. 
and they wanted the demonstration in the park with the statue, which, of course, is the natural place. Um, and the city wanted to move it about a mile away to a larger park, but they provided absolutely no evidence as to why that larger park would have been a better or safer venue. Um, uh, and it seemed to the ACLU, and I think rightly so, that what they were trying to do was shunt the demonstrators off to a place where they would have less visibility uh, and less ability to express their opinions. Thanks so much for that. Uh, so the District Court of Western Virginia agreed with the ACLU and ruled that the city has had to allow the protest to continue at Emancipation Park, as you said. And then on August 11th, members of the Unite the Right rally marched to the statute of Robert E. Lee chanting, uh, White Lives Matter, you will not replace us and Jews will not replace us. Uh, John, uh, those protesters were met by uh, counter-protesters, some of whom were members of a movement called Antifa. And those protesters uh, did not have a permit. Did they violate the law? And what was the legal status of the counter-protest at the time that it began? Right. Well, so I think part of the backdrop to this whole confrontation, and Bert alluded to it when he mentioned streets and parks in particular, is the idea that there are some but not all spaces of cities and lands that are government-owned spaces called traditional public forums. And in those spaces, anyone can be there to talk about anything on their own terms. That's why the government allows for these uh, expressions of private interests and private ideas. And it's, it's fundamentally important to allow those spaces to exist. But we can't all be there at once. And so the government is allowed to impose kinds of licensing uh, schemes and ideas to allow for certain people to be there at certain times. And because the original protesters had applied for a permit, they were there lawfully under the scheme. And then the question is, when counter-protesters show up, to what extent can they be there? Now, in any controversial case, government officials can and should expect for counter-protesters to be there. This is often the case when you have, say, versions of the Klan marching in the local uh, area, and, and the police and law enforcement will expect counter-protesters to be there. So they have to be able to manage it. And typically, if everyone can protest and express themselves peaceably without a disturbance to the public order, we can manage both sides of these kinds of demonstrations that didn't happen in Charlottesville. So, Bert, as I understand it, when the protest began, both the Unite the Right uh, protesters on the right and the Antifa protesters on the left were there legally. Uh, at what point was the law broken, and, and how do state laws tend to govern the question of when the police are supposed to intervene to prevent violence without allowing counter-protesters to exercise a heckler's veto? Well, this is, uh, this is one of the hardest questions in the administration of the First Amendment law. It's clear, uh, as John points out, that once the, the city agreed to allow the um, Unite the Right group to demonstrate in this particular park, that it was obliged to understand that there would be counter-demonstrators showing up, and the counter-demonstrators has every right to be there um, and to express uh, a contrary point of view. Um, um, at that point, uh, you have something that co that um, uh, comes up constantly, and that's the, the risk of violence. Uh, during the civil rights movement, for example, when um, black civil rights groups would march through white towns in the South are urging some form of uh, civil rights change, um, the law developed very quickly that um, the counter-demonstrators, counter the white supremacists, had every right to come and counter-demonstrate, but um, they could not attempt to use violence 
um, or the threat of violence to shut down the demonstration. Um, there's no such thing, and the, the word that, they get, that gets used, there's no such thing as a heckler's veto, um, where what you do is show up uh, and shout down the other side, make sure that the other side can't speak, either because you make it impossible for them to speak because of violence, or you make it impossible for them to speak uh, because of other settings. They should not. Uh, when when you've got two contending groups like that, um, the answer is that we have to find ways to let both of them express themselves, and it'll be it'll be unruly. They'll be shouting. This is not a party in somebody's uh, living room. Um, uh, but you don't let one group overwhelm the other, and that's when the police come in. That is the most difficult and sensitive job for a good police force under these circumstances, to keep them apart, to make sure that each of them gets to say their message, um, and to try to head off violence. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's not at all, I don't, think, I don't think there's really much doubt about what the optimum way of behaving is. The hard part um, is that it gives the police such a tough job, um, but it's, I think it goes with the First Amendment territory. John, what should the police have done here? As Bert says, it's incredibly hard and it's easy to second guess, but uh, did they act correctly? Did they follow state law? And tell us also about the presence of firearms in the wake of the Charlottesville conflict. The ACLU has decided that it will no longer defend hate groups seeking to march with firearms. How does that decision comport with Supreme Court case law? Yeah, you've just raised a host of uh, additional complicators, especially for the job of law enforcement. So one thing to point about, out about any protest situation as it unfolds is, is the constitutional standard protects anything short of imminent incitement to lawbreaking. This is the Brandenburg standard. And one thing that even courts often miss about the standard is it's not limited to incitement to violence. It's any lawbreaking. So once a protest or a group signals that it is about to break the law, whether that's trespassing or, or even some other nonviolent action, the authorities have the full right to shut down the protest, to declare it unlawful. So the constitutional standard only applies to lawful protests. There's a separate question, however, which is when state law kicks in, and every state has some form of an unlawful assembly law that, that, that allows law enforcement to criminalize a group's presence uh, out of a concern for what is to come. So unlawful assembly is in the family of these crimes that are inchoate or yet to be completed crimes. Authorities anticipate the possibility of a riot, and in order to head off the riot, they use the, they use the authority of an unlawful assembly law. Now, what's interesting about most of these laws is, unlike the constitutional standard, these laws require the imminent threat of force or violence or the conspiracy to break the law using force or violence. So back to Charlottesville, the authorities really had to have a sense that there was going to be either a conspiracy or an imminent incitement toward the breaking of the law with force or violence. And, and as Bert said, that's an incredibly difficult standard for law enforcement to evaluate in the moment when, in a matter of minutes, you could have a protest, or even seconds, you could have a protest turn from peaceable and nonviolent to threatening or engaging in violence. And then you mentioned the question of firearms complicating that immensely, right? So back in the day when there were, there were still always firearms around in many of these protests, but they were a different kind of weapon with, with less range and often less lethality. And when we have concealed weapons and, and really just more powerful and potent weapons today, this raises a question, particularly at the intersection of First and Second 
Amendment case law, uh, it's it's a it's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's very hard to figure out what the constitutional standard ought to be given the recognition of Second Amendment rights, but it certainly complicates the First Amendment. Bert, what do you think of the ACLU's decision no longer to defend hate groups seeking to march with firearms? Uh, given your strong uh, civil libertarian uh, sympathies, I'm, I'm I'm sympathetic to it. I mean, I'm um, uh, I my days as a as a full time ACLU uh, lawyer are long past, but I, I am sympathetic. Um, um, it seems to me, if I were a city official, I must say, uh, if I, and somebody came to me and wanted uh, to have a demonstration in the park, as John points out, um, at that point I have to make sure that the uh, uh, physical space isn't being used by two people at the same time, that, uh, that it's not going to be a, uh, uh, a traffic hazard or something like that. Um, and they asked me for the permit. Um, um, and uh, I asked them whether they were going to be carrying weapons. Um, and they said, yeah, we're going to be carrying weapons. I think as a uh, as a government official, I wouldn't give them permission to do it. I'd say, you want to demonstrate, demonstrate. But the carrying of weapons under these circumstances is such a threatening act and so likely to lead to some form of violence uh, that you can surely, surely project your message without having to carry guns. Um, uh, and uh, you want to carry maybe unloaded guns, maybe we can, that's, that's, that would be impractical. You couldn't tell whether they were loaded or not. But my sense is there's nothing wrong with trying to take the guns out of these demonstrations. Um, this is, the right to bear arms is, 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 a, is essentially a defensive right, the way I see it. It's a right to have a weapon so that you can protect yourself against uh, attack and against uh, um, uh, all sorts of possible settings. It is not an affirmative aggressive right to go out and brandish it um, and, fr- and frighten someone else. Uh, and so I have no quarrel at all with shutting down uh, the weapons at these demonstrations. John, what do you think of the ACLU's decision not to defend protesters carrying firearms? And can you tell us about the relevance of the Virginia and Black case from 2002, in which the Supreme Court allowed the banning of cross-burning on the ground that cross-burning could uh, amount to a true threat, that is, the intent to communicate a tool of intimidation and a threat of impending violence? You mentioned Virginia against Black, which is a controversial case in a lot of First Amendment circles. And Bert, a second ago, mentioned the the verb or the act of brandishing a weapon. And I think both of those go toward the really hard question of when somebody is using either words or a symbol, or in this case, a weapon, to intimidate, because the perception of intimidation is is often a subjective one. And so what does it mean for one person to feel intimidated by another person? And, and who do we ask and what standard do we use? I think this complicates things quite a bit. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to Bert's suggestion that as a, a reasonable government official, I might say uh, to satisfy the requirements of a content-neutral time, place, and manner restriction, we're just going to say no weapons. And, and the, uh, I would think putting myself in the shoes of a reviewing court that would make a lot of sense from the from the perspective of public safety or public order. The the one sort of caution I, I have in thinking about it is that when we think about the ways in which time, place and manner restrictions can be used to suppress the expressive content of a group, there there might so I'm thinking perhaps what if the National Rifle Association wants to 
launch a lobby, launch a protest in order to convey its expressive message about a certain kind of gun use to say no weapons at all and that protest would somewhat deprive it of an expressive message and maybe the answer is too bad the public safety concern here uh, trumps your desire to have a gun but there's at least lurking in the background a possible first amendment objection to some of these kinds of restrictions although i think on balance as we look at this and if we try to put ourselves in the issues of law enforcement officers, they're already having to deal with an incredible amount of fast-moving on-the-ground uh, changes. And to, to decomplicate that a little bit by saying no guns seems to make a lot of sense to me. Uh, Bert John just mentioned that Virginia versus Black was a controversial decision. There was powerful dissents by three strong civil libertarians, Justices Souter, Kennedy, and Ginsburg. Do you agree with Virginia v. Black's holding, written by Justice O'Connor, that a symbol that conveys a message of intimidation can be banned, even though the speaker doesn't actually intend to carry out the threat because it protects individuals from the fear of violence and the disruption that fear engenders, as well as the possibility that threatened violence will occur. Well, I, I, I do agree, but I, I draw a distinction between um, civil and criminal context. If, if you're prosecuting somebody for bringing a gun to a demonstration, uh, and you're prosecuting them on the grounds that um, it was an intimidation. I actually think that the First Amendment may require that you have a, some element of proof of a subjective intent to um, uh, to frighten. If it's a civil situation about whether the government has to license the demonstration in the first place on the grounds that the guns are so likely to be perceived as an intimidating factor, I think the government has much more um, much more room in a civil setting. Uh, than it would have in a criminal setting. Um, and so uh, my hope is that uh, that, uh, that that will be a, uh, a beacon, because I have to tell you, the one job I wouldn't take is to be a cop at one of these things, uh, because we're asking them to do the impossible. We are literally asking them to keep people apart who hate each other, and um, unless we at least take the guns away, um, it's just a matter of time till some cop gets killed. Um, and and so uh, my hope is that we can stop the escalation of the guns um, uh, at some point by thoughtful uh, efforts by the, by local officials. John, in your interactive Constitution essay, you write very powerfully about the importance of a protection of freedom of association for groups, not just for individuals. Why is it important to protect the rights of groups like both the Unite the Right groups and the Antifa groups? To protest and moving forward, assuming that the guns are taken away, what will cities be required to ensure that the protests can take place and are not shut down by heckler's vetoes? Well, I mean, the main thing we have to do is be vigilant about what counts as a time, place, and manner restriction, and that we we ask government officials to apply those as mutually as they can without trying to leverage them against a particular ideological viewpoint that they happen to dislike. And, you know, here, uh, we mentioned a minute ago, it's, a, it's only a matter of time before law enforcement officers are killed. Well, they've already been killed in some of these circumstances, so we can think back to the the protests in Dallas uh, when, when a shooter takes out some police officers. And in those situations, because, and in fact, in those protests where, where guns were seen invisible, right, the, the complications of the weapons there. So we, we have 
challenges there. And then on the other hand, the, the kinds of constitutional values, to your point about why we protect groups in the first place, the private groups of civil society are where most of us form our ideas and our values for good or for bad. And, and the fact of difference in society means that we are going to have groups that disagree with each other, and in fact, groups that find each other's viewpoints morally reprehensible. And up to as the to whatever point we can bear as a society, we have to allow those groups to exist and to form their beliefs and then to be in public to share their beliefs. And, and we have uh, some kind of a, a forum where we try to sort those things out uh, without assuming uh, too much on the front end of what is good and bad. And then we, and then we get to limit principles. And, and maybe we've seen some of those in Charlottesville. Right now, we don't allow the al-Qaeda group to exist because we've decided as a country that those are just not ideals that we can separate from apart from a criminal conspiracy. And at some point, we might say there are other groups that fall into that category. But those are very hard determinations to make. And when we look back at our country's history, we've often jumped the gun on that. Right? We've tried to criminalize groups, political groups, labor groups, other groups that were causing disruptions, in some ways adding to instability in our society, but not the kind of group we would say is so far out of bounds that we should shut it down completely. Thanks for that. Uh, Bert, you too, in your Interactive Constitution essay, talk about the importance of uh, protection for groups under the uh, Free Association Clause. Uh, moving forward, what, would, what, what reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions would you suggest that cities adopt to ensure that both the alt-right groups and the Antifa groups can uh, protest without shutting each other down? The, the time, place, or manner uh, um, restrictions that John mentioned are essentially the, uh, the, the mechanisms, the toolbox that the local officials have to try to maximize the opportunity of people to be able to speak and minimize the degree of disruption that they cause to other legitimate um, interests. Um, and um, you want to be very careful that we don't allow time, place, or manner to evolve into a kind of censorship, saying it's too much trouble to have these guys march, and therefore we'll just shut them down. That can't be the, uh, the answer. That would be uh, that would be giving up on something very important in our culture. Um, uh, freedom of assembly is, uh, is 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 one of the linchpins of the First Amendment, and we just can't. Uh, uh, you don't want to you don't want to forget that freedom of assembly um, allows people that don't own printing presses, that don't have verbal sophistication, that never gra- gra- you know don't have a graduate degree. What they use is sweat equity. They use their bodies to express their views in a in in a way that throughout history has been an enormously important way for poor people to express themselves. So that the last thing we would want is to shut down freedom of assembly. Um, I also think it doesn't work. Um, the last the last thing I want to do with Nazi speech in this country or white supremacist speech in this country is drive it underground. You drive that speech underground. You don't drive it out of existence. Um, people just whisper it to each other in the dark, um, and, you, and, it, and it festers, and it, it continues to grow. What's happening now in the country, I think, is exactly what should happen. People see these people talk. They watch the, that torchlight parade, which looks like a, um, an SS demonstration in Weimar, Germany. Um, um, and they, they're, they're appalled by the expression and appalled by the white supremacists, and they speak back. They begin to talk back. They force it into the sunlight, and they drain it of its venom. And I think that's the way uh, a free society deals with terrible speech like the uh, Charlottesville um, um, uh, 
white supremacist speech. John, what is the responsibility of the protesters uh, to avoid engaging in violence in Berkeley uh, in August, uh, according to the headlines, uh, Antifa members attacked uh, peaceful right-wing demonstrators in Berkeley. Tell us more about that incident and whether the Antifa people were breaking the law. And in the, in the process, why don't you just remind our listeners exactly what the Brandenburg standard is and, and why speech can be banned when it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence? Sure. So the Brandenburg is a 1969 opinion where the Supreme Court was looking at uh, a, a local... Klan demonstration, and then the question was, was the speaker motivating the crowd toward a kind of violence by by inciting a sort of emotion in the crowd to do something? And what the Supreme Court said was, up until the moment of an imminent incitement to law-breaking, when you're right on the verge of telling people, uh, you should break this law now, as compared to break a law sometime in the future, that the standard is, is that strict that we allow for speech until it's the imminent incitement of law-breaking. But once you engage in actual violence, as we saw in Charlottesville and as we saw in Berkeley, you've, you've passed that line. And the the justification, there's this question trending in the last few months, can, can you, should you punch a Nazi or can you punch a Nazi? Well, the answer is no, right? If, if the Nazi is standing there uh, expressing his or her Nazi views, you cannot punch the Nazi. And you might find the viewpoint appalling and you might not want that person to be your fellow citizen, but you can't engage in violence. And that seems like it should be a pretty straightforward principle of not only our constitutional arrangement, but also how we try to treat each other, despite the fact that we find the other viewpoint repulsive. And and so there is a, a kind of self-policing responsibility that comes with protesting. And, you know, another thing that comes to mind as we're talking is, in addition to restraining our actions short of violence, all of us collectively could do a lot better in restraining our words. So Bert was talking about bringing out the hate groups into the sunlight so that we can respond to their messages. I think that's right, but here's one thing that really complicates that. When everything under the sun starts to become a hate group, in other words, anyone we don't like is, is a hate group, everybody's a Nazi, and that seems to be happening in our discourse back and forth, left and right, then it becomes really hard to single out the real neo-Nazis when we want to do so. And so I think part of our collective responsibility as citizens is to dial back the rhetoric and save, keep the powder dry until the instances that we actually uh, have in front of us. And we've seen that uh, you know, somewhat remarkably and, and, and stunningly. We've seen that in Charlottesville recently. So we, we, we don't have to have hypotheticals anymore. We have actual hate groups out there. We should call them hate groups. But if we call everybody who disagrees with us a hate group, we're going to diminish our own ability to uh, do the kind of civic norms that Bert is asking us to do. Bert, do you agree or disagree? Well, I agree with that. Uh, um, um, I'm not sure that um, the truth is, I think the word hate group has now been so overused uh, in the in, in the discourse, that it doesn't have much doesn't have much value anymore uh, as an epithet. Um, um, I I find myself deeply deeply offended by by Nazis. Um, uh, the idea that uh, uh, Nazis would march in a or in a torchlight parade uh, through the University of Virginia campus, mimicking the way the stormtroopers marched um, with their torches um, in the 1930s, I found that a chilling scene. And I wouldn't have had any trouble if I were a counter-demonstrator screaming at 
them and trying to say what terrible people they were. And I have no, I have no um, patience for white supremacists or for people who try to hide behind um, um, white supremacy by saying, well, I've got nothing against the black race. I just like the white race. Um, and uh, at some point, Calling them a hate group doesn't do very much. Uh, it seems to me that what you do is you listen to them. I think the bargain we all have about living in a free society and having the benefits of the First Amendment is that we have a duty that when offensive speech comes our way that harms weak people, we have to help answer it. Um, uh, I'm in favor of counter-demonstrations, of uh, peaceful counter-demonstrations, but I'm in favor of making it very clear that I protect your right to speak but boy, am I going to let you know that I think you're wrong. Um, and uh, that is, I think, the, the, loads, the lodestar that we should steer by. Um, instead of trying to shut them down, uh, instead of trying to drive them underground, let them talk and let's answer them. And let's answer them effectively and peacefully. Uh, John, I'm going to ask for some advice for university administrators uh, in the face of protests. If a uh, controversial speaker, say someone from the alt-right is coming to campus, how should you guarantee their right to speak? And at what point do you intervene if there's uh, a counter-protest? And how in practice can you remove counter-protesters uh, with, 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 without leading to violence? Yeah, this is such an important issue for, and I, I really feel empathy for college administrators today because it's a question that's coming up in different forms over and over again. I think the first thing to point out is we have to make a threshold distinction between public and private universities. Private universities have far greater latitude to restrict on their own terms uh, who's in and, and the terms of those engagements. And in a public university where the First Amendment is in play, the resources available to university administrators are just going to be less because of the the concerns of the First Amendment. So I, I think on, on principle, maybe step one would be for administrators and faculty and students to the extent that people are inviting different speakers onto campus, have a little more collective responsibility about who you're inviting and why. I think I'm all for the full range of discourse, but we there are plenty of people who can civilly represent the full spectrum of discourse without coming in with, uh, in a disruptive mode or in a desire to belittle other opposing viewpoints, which are really outside the norms of academic discourse to begin with. So I think, uh, as a first instance, who are people inviting and why is a, is a question, not really a legal question, but a question, an institutional question of the university as a, as a responsible actor. And then once the speakers come and are there, I, I think it's incumbent on the university to give them a hearing. So certainly allow for the space for protests and counter-protests and allow them to be expressive and be cautious about diminishing the expressive value by trying to move them somewhere else. But then at the same time, once the actual talk or speech or set of speeches is, is scheduled to occur, allow for those to happen without disruptions, without the kind of collective heckler's veto that shuts down the communication at all. There's a, there's a sense in which it seems a growing number of college campuses are just allowing for a kind of loud noise and counter-protest to drown out the speech at all. And I suppose I would say if the speech itself is comporting to norms of academic discourse, no matter how controversial the issue is, that the speech itself should be heard and that the proper remedy is to respond to that speech, not to try to drown it out. 
expert, etc. I'm so eager for your answer. I'll ask the same question. Uh, do, do you agree with John that private universities should exercise their greater authority to restrict protests than public universities? And and what advice would you give to university administrators? Well, I think it's a matter of hard, a hard law. Of course, John is right that um, state schools are bound by the First Amendment and um, um, have a relatively uh, uh, low margin of, uh, of choice as to what kind of speakers are going to be allowed on campus. Um, why, why, whereas private schools um, have a broader um, power and maybe broader responsibility in that setting. Although, um, I would be sorry to see a gulf divide, uh, a gulf uh, emerge where the state schools would be uh, places where you know, lots of vigorous and sometimes contentious speech went on, whereas the private schools became a kind of island of uh, um, uh, just recycling what is acceptable speech. I, it seems to me, from my own view as an educator, that higher education is all about confronting um, ideas that you don't like. Um, if we go through life with ideas that we agree and like, life is simple, but we haven't been challenged. Um, and it, to me, uh, these moments are teachable moments. These moments are moments where um, uh, students uh, uh, can be awakened as to the dangers of uh, the kinds of speech that they don't want to hear. Um, but I think the last thing we should do is encourage college administrators, both private and public, um, uh, to take the easy way out, and that's the way of silence. Uh, I, I agree with John that we should be attempting to put as many speakers as possible on these campuses. And um, uh, for me, though, the really important quid pro quo, and what I've tried to do here at NYU where I teach, um, is to say, look, if we're going to have an open campus where people come here and they say hateful things and, and um, people hear them and they feel terrible and they are troubled in being able to um, you know, do their work and go to class, uh, we have a duty that if we're going to let those people, if we think we benefit as a society from this kind of open, open set of communications, our duty is to rally around the victims, um, both to answer the speech uh, but also to make it clear that uh, the, that's the, the community doesn't share um, the kind of garbage that these guys are spewing. And that's, I don't care whether it's Antifa that are beating, you know, beating up on uh, uh, the right wing or the extreme right wing that uh, are beating up on somebody else. Um, the, the middle has got to make itself heard and has got to say that we, we reject this stuff. Um, and if we if we sit silently by and expect the police and expect college administrators and judges to somehow drop from the sky and solve this, uh, then we won't be doing our duty as citizens. Every citizen has a duty here to protect the First Amendment, but by protecting the First Amendment, to exercise their rights to say uh, when this stuff is hateful. Great. Uh, eloquently said on both sides. Um, back to Charlottesville and Statues, John, in the wake of Charlottesville, cities across the nation are removing statues, including, uh, for example, a statue of Chief Justice Roger Taney in Baltimore. Are there any constitutional dimensions to the decision to regard the statues, and could it be regarded as a form of government speech? Well, you know, Bert had raised this uh, earlier when we were talking before the conversation, and I, I think the government speech question is a, is a fascinating and an important one, and, and part of the underlying problem here is that the Supreme Court's approach to government speech, that is, when it declares an area, whether it's a monument or a, a single statute or sometimes an entire park, to be a government speech zone that is not subject to the First Amendment, but is instead 
the government expressing its own message, then it opens up a huge can of worms in terms of what are the restrictions uh, on that speech, where does the First Amendment come into play, and, and these monuments and statute cases are starting to raise uh, pressure points on that doctrine itself. And I, I think I'd be really interested in what Bert has to say about that, but I think conceptually what we're seeing is is a real limit point to what the court has tried to do with the government speech doctrine. Yes, Bert, it was your suggestion that made me ask the question, and I too am fascinated uh, in what way might a government decision to remove a statute implicate the Constitution as a form of government speech? Well, the, the, uh, as, as, as you guys know, uh, the government speech doctrine is a doctrine that's relatively recent. Uh, you know, we can debate whether it's 10 years old or 15 years old, but it's a, it's a relatively recent doctrine that said, hey, government has a right to speak, too. And when government talks, um, it doesn't necessarily have to give other people a chance to answer. So it's sort of free from the usual equality rules. Um, and the government gets to say what it wants in certain circumstances. And putting up some monuments, sometimes they're religious monuments, sometimes they're historical monuments, um, um, are perceived as the government speaking. Uh, a term ago, the Supreme Court said that what's on your license plate is the government speaking. And so that can be regulated in particular ways. The government can decide what goes on your license plate. You can't have a motto on there that they don't want to have on there. Um, um, when you translate that government speech doctrine into the um, dispute in Charlottesville about taking down Robert E. Lee or taking Tawney's statute um, uh, away or taking some of the other statutes of uh, leaders of uh, what had been a racist past in the nation, um, um, you ask the question of if, if the government chooses to allow those monuments to be there, is that just a historical um, exercise in uh, this is part of our heritage or by letting them occupy this precious public space, is the government speaking through them? Are they, are they providing a message of, the, of respect for these people that is inconsistent with the values that uh, um, people might want their government to espouse? And so I'm afraid that we've complicated the question of removal of these, um, uh, of these monuments um, by the question of whether the monuments are to be thought of as government speech or not. For me, if I had my druthers, I would, I would treat the monuments, again, as teachable moments. I would treat the Robert E. Lee monument by saying, this is a man who is perceived in his time as being a decent man, a brilliant military strategist. Look at the shortcomings that he had in his moral view that were a function of his historical moment, um, and recognize that the historical moment is a moment that we have passed through. And every time you look at that Robert E. Lee statue, remember what a racist past we had and how we're struggling to improve it today. There, I think, that's a, there the monuments could be, I think, useful in, in, in teaching us about how we move uh, uh, into a, a, a different and perhaps a hopefully a better world. Um, but uh, I must say, um, I, don't hear any, I don't hear anything like that kind of sophisticated um, description of how we could use the monuments. Uh, they're being used as a, an up or down vote on whether you uh, agree with racism or not agree with racism. And that's an unfortunate way to, I think, posit the issue. Wow. Well, John, now that Bert has raised this fascinating possibility, imagine that someone challenges uh, a government's decision to leave up a statue of Lee or Tawney on the grounds that it's a form of endorsement that violates the Equal Protection Clause. 
Uh, would the counter argument be that, uh, no, the government is just uh, keeping this up for historical teachable reasons, which the Supreme Court says would, said was okay in the Ten Commandments case? Or if you were trying to defend the government's decision to leave it up against a constitutional challenge, what would you say? Yeah, I suppose that would be the argument, that, we're, that we don't defer to subjective experiences of certain expressions of, of government speech forms, uh, as we've seen in some of the Establishment Clause cases. And there's a certain logic underlying the argument, which is to say, if you did defer to subjective experiences, and there's a way in which some of Justice O'Connor's language in some of these cases suggests that we want to subjectivize the experience uh, of, of perceiving a government symbol, it becomes very difficult to set limits on that. So if I happen to drive by any monument, do I, and I, I feel like it doesn't uh, fully recognize my status as a citizen or it offends my religious beliefs, do I have a claim against government uh, for that monument? It could quickly become a kind of unworkable uh, administratability question. Uh, so, so I think legally that's where I would make the constitutional answer. Uh, you know, as a personal matter, I, I look at some of these statues and I think, gee, I'm, I'm not sure that I've fully uh, thought through some of the historical implications of how these came to be and the timing uh, with which they were erected and the reasons for some of them. And so although there's a complicated historical narrative to the figures themselves, there's also a pretty complicated historical narrative to the statues and why they were imposed. And some of that does seem to be uh, less than uh, less than just sort of genuine celebration of history and more directed at some of the racial challenges of our past. And so there, I, I think there's a good argument to be made for why some of these statues, uh, or maybe many of them, should come down. I, I, I am personally wary of the efforts and even the admonitions of some people to take them down right by any means. I, I, I think there should be a discussion and it should be city council votes and those sorts of things rather than private citizens tearing them down in the middle of the night and that sort of thing. But I, I think the, the messaging around these monuments, what they meant then, what they mean now and how people perceive them, short of the constitutional question, I do think creates a really interesting and important civic discussion. But I think like Bert, I would I would much rather see that discussion unfolding as opposed to knee-jerk reactions one way or the other. Wow. Well, Bert, you've taken us squarely into the renaming debate. Uh, Yale University recently issued a report setting out four principles for whether or not a uh, institution should be renamed, and they include, uh, is a principal legacy of the namesake fundamentally at odds with the mission of the university? Was the relevant principal legacy significantly contested in the time and place in which the namesake lived? Did the university at the time of the naming honor a namesake for reasons at odds with the mission of the university? And does the building whose namesake has a principal legacy fundamentally at odds with the university's mission or was it named for reasons fundamentally at odds with the mission, play a substantial role in forming community at the university. Some have argued that these principles were reverse engineered to allow the renaming of Calhoun College at Yale, but to prevent the renaming of Yale itself, since Yale owns slaves. But it's a thoughtful set of principles. And my question to you is, uh, is there might there be a constitutional restraint on Yale if Yale were a public university from abiding by these principles and choosing to... Uh, rename some buildings and not others. 
no, I actually, I, I completely agree with John that this is not an issue for courts. Uh, the issue about uh, does something get renamed, does it not get renamed, does the statute get taken down, does it not get taken down, um, as you as you did so nicely a moment ago, you could you could structure, you could you could uh, uh, describe that as an equal protection issue or as a First Amendment issue, and uh, you know lawyers will have no trouble formulating a complaint and writing a brief on it. But I actually, but I don't think that uh, courts would accept it, and I don't think it, um, it rises to the level of you must or you may not. I think the question is what you should do. Um, and um, uh, the, the, what we should do is think about the degree to which the naming of important public places, um, what, what messages they're sending, um, and to what degree we want those messages to go in a particular way and to particular people, whether the messages can be used as a teaching message, whether, whether it is an endorsement message. Uh, these are things for thoughtful discussion um, and ultimate popular resolution. And, and um, despite the fact that I think that it will cause a good deal of annoyance and aggravation um, and, and maybe some loud shouting back and forth, I think it's a wonderful discussion for us to have as a nation, because um, I, I share with John, I can't tell you how many times I've walked past a statue um, um, in Richmond or a statue in uh, Atlanta or a statue in Charlottesville, um, uh, and not thought at all about um, what it was saying and why and um, uh, what it told us about our past and what it might tell us about our future. Um, and um, this is a this is a potentially valuable moment, and we should use it. Um, and, and and I think the country will come through it stronger uh, in its sense of who we are, who we want to be, and who we've been. Well, a wonderful discussion for our nation is exactly what both of you are helping us have by educating us about the really complicated constitutional issues raised by protest and statue removal. Um, it's time for closing arguments. Hard to sum up all that we've talked about, but I'll just ask uh, John, you first, um, why is it important to protect the constitutional rights of groups on the alt-right and alt-left to protest and how can they be allowed to protest peacefully? Well, I think it's important on two levels. It's important first uh, because every human being, no matter how hateful you think they may be, um, um, are in, uh, they, they, they have innate dignity and the capacity to express themselves. And the capacity to express yourself is what, part of what makes us human. Uh, and when we diminish that, we diminish our collective humanity. So strictly on the sense of existen you know, an existential commitment to human dignity, it's worth protecting. But it's also worth protecting because it's instrumental. The more we get this stuff out into the sunlight, the more we can answer it. Um, and there are many things that I think the marketplace of ideas is not going to be able to solve. But the one thing I am confident in this nation is that if we force this stuff into the sunlight, the marketplace of ideas will come down on the side of tolerance and decency and not on the side of white supremacists and Nazis. Great. John, uh, last word to you and the same question. Why is it important to protect the rights of groups on the alt-right and alt-left to associate under the First Amendment? Well, you know, I think, I think we, we see those groups rightfully as the limit principle, and, and we hope and aspire that those groups are minimized, uh, particularly when a hateful ideology is espoused. But, but I think for the rest of us as citizens, 
to recognize that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are there for a reason, that we, uh, as flawed human beings, elect other flawed human beings to govern us, and that those people can sometimes turn the power of the state against us, and that's the reason that we have these constitutional and civil liberties protections, and they protect us, and they protect the people who disagree with us, and sometimes those who disagree with us vehemently. And so this is this is something that we, we have to all be in together. And then as much as we're focusing on these constitutional questions today, and they are extremely important, I think part of what we're seeing in the national dialogue is a reminder of the urgency to look at our own civic practices and how we try to model discourse with people with whom we disagree. If, if we we can't have our society uh, move forward with protests and counter-protests. We have to have discussions and debates and dialogues, and the more that we, the more that we forget that, the harder it's going to be to recover it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Bert Newborn and John Anazu, for a really illuminating discussion that taught me and our listeners so much about the law of free association, of protest, and of statue removal. Listeners, read Bert and John's Great books. Bert's most recent one, Madison's Music. John has written uh, Confident Pluralism, uh, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference, as well as Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly. And read Bert and John's beautiful joint explainer on the interactive constitution, where they explore areas of agreement and disagreement. Bert, John, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Ugana Etze and Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Uh, sign up to receive Constitution Weekly. That's the email roundup of the podcast, constitutional news, debates. And as our new town hall season is gearing up, you want to make sure not to miss a single bit of the Constitution Center's phenomenal constitutional content. Sign up at bit.ly forward slash constitution weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please rate We the People in the App Store. It will help increase our audience and increase the learning that we can spread across the country about the Constitution. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite that inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the generosity, engagement, and passion of lifelong learners around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please go to the website, sign up, Become a member at any level to support our work and show your commitment to lifelong constitutional education. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.